Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Professor Kate Orty is a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne and Chair of Victoria's Environment Protection Authority. She's formerly held appointments as a Magistrate in Victoria and Western Australia, establishing Aboriginal sentencing courts in consultation with Aboriginal people. Today, I'm joined by Kate Orty to talk about her new book, O'Leary of the Underworld, The Untold Story of the Forest River Massacre. Kate Orty, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for inviting me to come on. When it comes to Australian history, it seems we've been sold a fiction all the way back to Captain Cook and beyond. Yeah, look, Greg, the reality is that the history of our country is something we are still in the throes of exploring. I think we're being given a gift in the truth-telling that's taking place at the moment, and I really, you know, shout out to Aboriginal people who have been bold and brave enough to want us to relive, in a way, this story. O'Leary is just one of many. It just happens to be 1926, so it's within more or less living memory. But I live in northeast Victoria and there are incidents here around us that we need to think about and I'm sure you've got uh, stories from your, your immediate circle as well. History is something that is evolving and we need to critically reflect on what we have done in this country and O'Leary is one of those places where we can uh, critically engage it. Well, let's get into not just the story but the place where this, these events happen, Forest River. It's the Kimberley. It's not easy country to live in. No, it's the East Kimberley. So this particular uh, punitive party was out to the west of Wyndham. So we're talking about a place that is uh, exposed to the elements in really significant ways. You know, the uh, wet season is a horror. The dry season is difficult. There was uh, very few people living around the place at the time this all occurred. Wyndham at most would have had 200 people, abattoirs that brought more people there from the south. It was a place that had been occupied by a number of pastoralists since the late part of the previous century. And these particular um, players in this matter were people who came in as a result of soldier settlement after World War I. So O'Leary was a former light horseman. Overhoy was a former light horseman. He was an owner of the station on which this occurred. And Hay, who was the person who was killed and which prompted this particular posse or punitive patrol, was also a former light horseman, in fact, a member of the 10th Light Horse, which is Western Australian royalty in terms of World War One. Let's get right back to the beginning, perhaps the catalyst for this particular massacre, and that was an attack on Frederick William Hay, who you've mentioned, and he attacked an Indigenous man named Lumbia with a stock whip and a revolver although that wasn't the way it was reported at the time. Of course, and naturally, Lumbia retaliated. Uh, he was sentenced to death in 1926, but then served nine years and then prosecuted initially for manslaughter and then murder in 1945. Makes you wonder, what was Lumbia's experience of white justice? I hasten to say I don't know how Lumbia felt about all of this, but I do know that that last instance, which was 1945, is the one that first drew me back to this story. I was in the Batty Library. I asked for the 1926 file and the librarian brought me the 1945 file and I said, it's not the file I want, and they said, I think it probably is. Lumbia's experience of the 1945 trial for the, the killing of his wife, and he did kill his wife, there's no question about that, was pretty bizarre, but it reflected a whole he heap of, 
uh, courts of native affairs that were running in Western Australia from 1936 to 54. And what happened in that trial was Lumbia's bench comprised a local doctor and a local publican. He got no uh, judge, he got no jury, and his uh, representative was the local hospital orderly. The bench found him guilty of murder and committed him to a sentence of death. They couldn't find him guilty of murder because he wasn't charged with that offence, and as a consequence, Lumbia had to be pardoned. He was pardoned. The really interesting thing about the file associated with all of that is that the people in the department go back and explore the 1926 matter and when doing so, say that he got a pretty rough show in 1926 and that that particular matter should not have been cited as even a prior conviction for the 1945 matter, which is a pretty extraordinary statement, but it demonstrates that people were starting to think that it was really important to make sure that the truth was told even about the 1926 matter, notwithstanding it's two decades later. Let's talk about the man, the man at the centre of this story, Patrick Bernard O'Leary, although that's not actually his real name or his birth name. He's the man at the core of this bloody story, and you have formed a fairly strong opinion of him. Yeah, I have, Greg, and and I've done it in, in, in circumstances where you never really know. You're second-guessing yourself because this is a long time ago and I'm not a psychologist. What really drove me to think about O'Leary is a couple of things. He was the one who, in uh, the very early stages of this investigation, almost before it got going, threatened the Ernest Gribble, the, the Reverend, told him he would put a bullet in him when he saw him in um, in Wyndham, even before the rumours had started to fly in July of 1926. He was the one who, when Gribble was giving evidence to the Royal Commission, threatened Gribble again with, by saying, come out to my place and uh, your toes will turn up. And that made me wonder about what this place was. And I went back and had a look at some early history from the East Kimberley Impact Studies. And, of course, that part of the world was called the underworld. And it was called the underworld because it seemed to attract people who wanted to live or did live on the real fringes. O'Leary was a fringe dweller in many respects. I then went back and had a look at a whole range of things about O'Leary and the Royal Commission. He was uh, supposedly under a false name. There was an incident that had occurred in 1922 in which he was involved. And I started to think this man's really critical. He's pivotal to what's gone on here. The two police who were part of the punitive patrol were quite young men. They were 23 and 24, and they'd not been involved in these sorts of incidences before. One of the others was a wharf labourer who'd uh, just come off the wharves and had had a fight with his manager, was looking for some funds and was paid as a special constable. The other was a veterinary scientist who volunteered because Hay had been good to him and they had a bit of a World War I association. And then, of course, there's Overhoy, who's also the former light horseman and the partner of Hay in the Nulla Nulla station. O'Leary's the person who's got a history and O'Leary's the person who's got a story which is secretive and which is basic to what's gone on in the Kimberley over a very short space of time, that, that time in the 1920s. And then when I started to look at the other things about him, it struck me that it was remarkable that after all of these events, he went off to Tennant Creek and became quite um, matey with uh, Constable Murray, who was involved in the Coniston um, massacres over there, which had been the subject of ongoing interest recently. And uh, in looking at O'Leary, it seemed to me that he was hanging around with the fringe in Tennant Creek as well with a bloke called Renfrey who was charged with murder and acquitted on the basis of self-defence. He also had an interesting association with some uh, racehorse spivs. And, of course, all of that came together when I started to look back on his story and found that his name was Coffee. 
His father was a policeman here in Victoria who himself had got in a lot of trouble about gambling, drinking and probably some selective prosecutions. His mother was a person who got herself into some um, strife about a trial in Bendigo where a Chinese man was uh, bashed and died and there were some perjury charges against some whites and she was involved, it would seem, in what happened in cultivating that perjury. She also was a person who then moved to Western Australia and having got there, hooked up with some of the really interesting, and I use that word advisedly, uh, mining people out there in Kalgoorlie, Giannini and the Hidden Secret Mine are pretty famous for a range of reasons. And, of course, when they got to Kalgoorlie, O'Leary, as a young man, Coffee, was charged with um, not having the uh, wherewithal to sustain himself, and that really is euphemistic for living on the earnings of prostitutes. And, of course, at the time he was prosecuted, so were some young women who were, in fact, um, his associates. This is a man who was... I've described him as a person who was grandiose and had a sense of his own importance and he had an appetite for risk. And I, I think all of that comes through once you start to unpack his story. As I say, I'm not a psychologist, but I thought it was fascinating that that was his story and none of the others seemed to have anything similar leading into this and following on from it. He had a remarkable knowledge of the legal system or an ability to manipulate the legal system uh, to, to obstruct, to delay, to inconvenience. I love the phrase you use, the coffee way was to argue and twist, look for advantage and force outcomes. Look, I think it certainly was about his father. When you look, I, I'm a lawyer, when you look at the way his father managed or micromanaged some of the court cases he was involved in, uh, he deferred, delayed, indicated a plea of not guilty and then capitulated. O'Leary did the same in respect of a court-martial when he was in France, when he was charged with assaulting a member of the military police. And it seems to me too that there was a lot of uh, a lot of very careful cultivation of the narrative in the Royal Commission, which only comes from knowing how to manage what's going on. And it involved things like talking about a split patrol, which means it's difficult to achieve home blame to the whole of the patrol. Now, the commissioner found that there was no split patrol, but it's, it's, a, it's an age-old method of avoiding responsibility. There was also a story about having uh, only apprehended one very large group of Aboriginal people as distinct from the small groups that the commissioner found had been apprehended. So it's a way of telling the story that muddies the waters and makes it difficult to ascribe individual blame. It was fascinating out of this matter that the two young police, the two police were the ones who were charged with a murder and one murder out of what would appear to be from the commissioners finding 20 people uh, being killed, but one murder and it was to do with an instance north of the um, north of the mission in circumstances where two mission, two men from the mission, two Aboriginal men from the mission had been sent out with the party by the Reverend Gribble. And that's the only time you've got what I would describe as independent evidence about what's going on. And I think O'Leary had grown up with that culture, certainly from his father and potentially from his mother. Let's talk for a moment about the group that undertook this murder, the punitive patrol, as you call it. Uh, a posse of 13 police and local white people armed to the teeth by all accounts. There can be no doubt as to their intentions. If it looks like war and it sounds like war, I think that's a really interesting comment, Greg, because that's one of the things that I really grappled with. We've got a lot of talk now about frontier wars, and there's no doubt that that's going to continue to be part of our unpicking of our history. What really, what really, um, 
exercised me about this was a war suggests that there's some evenness in the parties. It would suggest there's cavalry versus cavalry or men versus men. What I found really deeply disturbing about this stuff is that three women were taken off from one of these sites and and came to a tree and then ashes and teeth are found around the tree. Those women were removed from a group of seven Four men had already been executed and burnt in a creek and they're walked, these women are walked to their death. I, I must say, I, I thought about that and I thought, I don't understand how that could happen. I don't understand how anyone could do that. And it really struck me as um, beyond ugly. And, of course, after those three women were killed, nine other people were brought to O'Leary and others and those nine others were taken off to a ravine west of that site where they were then killed and their bodies burnt. And I've been a bit careful about some of the language I've used. I haven't referred to them as being cremated. I've said they were incinerated because they weren't cremated. They weren't given what we would describe as a cremation. And those things to me suggest this was sort of rather different than a war, but it it arose out of a warlike mentality amongst the people who were the police party. And, of course, one of the things that we're going to continue to hear about this matter is that people just struggle with how it could have happened. And I think we're, we're, I'm struggling myself now, but I think we really can come to grips with a war rather more than we can come to grips with this sort of uh, brutalised murder, mass murder. And it's somewhat different in character. And I struggled with how anyone could do that. So that's a bit emotive, but certainly that's how I felt about it. Um, look, the other thing about this is that it wasn't just one incident. It was four men at one place, three men, three women at another, nine at another place, and then a further four, two men and two women north of the mission after various members of the patrol were supposed to be disbanded. And look, I think one of the things that happened with this too is that people found this so hard to believe even at the time. Although there were earlier investigations into the murders, it's the 1927 Royal Commission under Commissioner George Wood that really brought the harsh reality of the event to the public's attention. What approach did Commissioner George Wood take that earlier investigations couldn't or wouldn't? And what conclusions was he able to reach? Earlier investigations and later investigations, I think. Look, George Wood is fascinating. He's a really interesting character. He was a New Zealander, in fact. He first came to Victoria where he sought to use his legal qualifications but couldn't get recognition. He then went to Western Australia where he did get recognition and he became the chief magistrate. When he um, when he left after this in about the 1930s, I think it was, he was recognised as a person who was polite, thoughtful, critical, uh, engaged and and a very and a good legal mind and uh, would be missed. So Wood himself was a person who was given the role, given the task, and I think he did it to the very best of his ability given the limitations he had. He had no counsel assisting, the mission had no counsel assisting, and the only barrister was in fact the barrister for the police. So George Wood was working in that particular environment. He's he's an interesting man and I think he did his best. I think he really struggled with what he had unfolded in front of him. And one of the things he did, which was quite unusual at the time, was to go out to the mission and take evidence. That would have been quite unusual. It would have been a big surprise to the police that uh, somebody was listening to Aboriginal people's testimony at all or with that level of um, interest. And, of course, out of that he came back with a very clear view of what he was hearing and he went north to the site of Dala and said of that camp that it was very clearly a police camp on the spot, examination, 
looking at what he was surrounded by, no question about it. And I think with respect to uh, his view of Douglas's testimony, he makes it clear that Douglas, as the police inspector, when he first went out and first reported back in September 1926, that he was very clear that the four men had been killed, the three women had been killed and nine others had been killed and he'd seen those places. He was on the spot to see those places. And it's true that uh, when when Douglas gave evidence, he was far less um, far less convincing about what he had seen. Wood makes that point, and it's pretty clear that Wood found it pretty disappointing. What Wood also says is that it's fascinating that the barrister who acted for the police party failed totally to mention Douglas's early report about what he'd found in his final submissions to the commission. And that absence told you a world of um, told you a world about this matter. That Douglas's early observations on the spot were critically important to the commission. They were really important about what occurred, and the police party did not want that stuff back before the tribunal, and weren't prepared to even even, even critically analyse it at the time that um, they had the opportunity to do so. Finally. One other thing, and I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of this because people should read it and form their own view, but one other thing is the person who guided Douglas around those sites, the four and the three and the nine, was a tracker called Suleiman. And Suleiman made a statement where he said that that's what in fact occurred. Suleiman was a witness who was held in Wyndham for the Royal Commission until days before he was required to give evidence and suddenly, lo and behold, Suleiman can't be found. Now, he didn't get killed because I found a photo of him some years later over at Turner Station, but Suleiman's evidence was important and Suleiman was not found. And remarkably, the person who was sent out to find Suleiman when the commissioner was told that he'd gone missing was St Jack, one of the police who was part of the posse. I don't know how hard he looked, but he didn't find him. It seems that uh, the Indigenous people, the First Nations people of the area, were uh, exposed and facing an inadequate and inappropriate legal system then and possibly still now. And I think you say what those years do show us is that Aboriginals' exposure to the legal system was oppressive, confusing and culturally insensitive. That legacy may still remain. I think that legacy is something that Aboriginal people still deal with. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Western Australia, uh, Wayne Martin, made a number of observations about that in the last couple of decades. The reality for Lumbia, just let's look at him, when he was committed for trial or when the inquest was held on, on Hay's death, Lumbia was uh, sufficiently frightened or aggravated to try and escape the police station slash court in Wyndham. And he was chained to the veranda for the whole of that hearing. That would be something that were it to happen in 1926 in Perth or anywhere else would have been an outrage. We would have been just outraged that that, that could have been contemplated. It was something that happened to Lumbia. And, you know, Aboriginal people will tell us today that they don't feel that they have much better presence in some of the courts that deal with uh, really significant matters that uh, impact them, their families, their communities and, and their, their lives. Books like O'Leary of the Underworld don't come about without many hours trawling through records in search of the truth. In this case of claim and counterclaim, how difficult is it to build a coherent picture of the events based on the available evidence? Oh, it's it's oh, it's very difficult, Greg. It's 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 something where you find yourself at eleven o'clock at night going down another rabbit warren and asking yourself if that's one of the important ones that you should be pursuing. 
I'll give a big shout out to Trove. We've, Trove really needs to be supported. It's one of the places where much of um, the newspaper material was made available to me. Big shout out to every librarian that helped me, in particular that very first librarian in the Batty who said, here's the 1945 file. So sometimes it's serendipity, sometimes it's just hard work, sometimes it's just not prepared to go, being prepared to go to bed before you find that last little thing that you think is important. O'Leary worked very hard to keep his story out of circulation. I know that um, that makes uh, that makes for an interesting psychological drama. And as I say, that's not my background. I thought one of the things to unpack for a public in this book was the way the court proceedings operated. And to the extent that I've been able to pick that up and run with it, I think that might be useful for some people in trying to understand the level of complexity and the layers in this story. Of course, throughout this story, there's the people that we can't forget, which are the victims of, of this massacre, just at the front of your book, you dedicate your book to Warrawalla Marga uh, as a gesture of remembrance to her life and tragic death. What do we know about Warrawalla Marga? I know nothing about her other than what appeared in the Royal Commission, that she was an old woman and that she was blind. And that was what made me feel uh, even more the need to recognise her as a person who had lost her life in this um, in this shocking incident. And I made the point when I spoke to my publisher that we all stumble to our deaths, Greg. It's just that most of us can see where we're going. And I, I can't imagine the fear. I can't imagine what it must have felt like. I just can't imagine it. My final question is the secret voice. Think like O'Leary appears quite often in, throughout your book. How is that possible? That's absolutely the nub of this, and the answer to that is it's not. But I wanted people to try and think like O'Leary, and I didn't want to say try and think like O'Leary because I think you can be a bit definite about some of this, which is how would I feel about this? What do I think this means? I use that um, as a, as a bit of a pull to get people to keep coming back to O'Leary and asking themselves what it was that was going on here. I think many people will when they start to try and think like O'Leary, have lots of other questions that I certainly didn't, and I hope they do. Kate Orty, this is a book like no other, and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. I've been talking to Kate Orty about her book, O'Leary of the Underworld, The Untold Story of the Forest River Massacre. It's published by La Trobe University Press, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.